Yo, what up, people? It's your boy, Chad Day from WWTB, what we talking about. And by this time, you should be familiar with what we do. Uh, we do the podcast, but we also do something called the check-in. And this one right here is a little bit different, but very important. I would like to introduce this young lady. I met her. Uh, she has a great spirit about her. Um, she is run running for a congresswoman of the Ohio 3rd District. So without further ado, I would like to introduce... Morgan Harper. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Yeah. We know you are super busy uh, moving around, moving and shaking. And <laughs> Going everywhere. Doing everything this, you yeah. do. Um, I want to jump into this interview with you. Um, first of all, you're from Columbus, Ohio, right? I am, yeah. What part of the city did you grow up in? Yeah, so I was born at Ohio State University Hospital. I was given up for adoption. I lived in a foster home for nine months, and then I eventually was adopted and raised on the east side, so off of James Road in Berwick. Oh, okay, Berwick area. Yep, mm -hmm. familiar with that. Um, you said that you were adopted. What did your um, adopted parents or mother, what did they do for a living? So my mom worked in, Clum at the time, Columbus Public Schools, no, Columbus City Schools, whatever. Okay. Uh, she was an art teacher. She immigrated to Ohio from Trinidad and, uh, and yeah, was an educator and later on went into the Gahanna system, but in my okay. early childhood was in Columbus Public okay. Schools. Was she a single mother or? Yeah, single mom. So at the time when I was adopted, my parents were married. Uh, wasn't a good marriage, a lot going on there. So we kind of had to like leave, restabilize uh, and went through a lot of stress around that financial stress, being raised by a single mom on educators, salary. But, um, but yeah, but it opened up a lot of opportunity for me to eventually get financial aid to go to Columbus Academy. And that was like a whole new, whole new world. <laughs> okay. Um, you have any siblings or anything? Yeah, I have a, an older brother. He's four years older. Okay. Okay. You said that you went to Columbus Academy. Like at what age did you attend? Columbus so I started Academy? there in the fifth grade. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I was 10 years old when I started, and it had been an all-boys school. Oh, so wow. I started, I didn't know that. yeah, in one of the first couple of years when they started having girls. So when I started, there were seven <laughs> girls in my class. When I graduated, there were 20 girls in my wow, class out of, out of 70, 75 people, 77 people. So. I, I had to do my research on Columbus Academy. I wasn't really familiar with it. Where, where is that at? It's in Gahanna. So okay. it's, yeah, Cherry Bottom Road, kind of like yeah, between. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it is actually, yeah, it's very close to Super Chef. Okay. Yeah. Also well, near 62. If you would have went, like, what would have been your homeschool if you didn't go there? Eastmore. Eastmore? Yeah. Okay, that, I went to Eastmore, so. Oh, cool. Yeah, shout out to the yeah. workers. I was thinking about this, like, what age did, did you want to get, like, when did you realize you love politics? Well, I don't know if I would say that I love politics. To me, it's almost like, a means to an end, it's, it's necessary, right? So, you know, once I made that transition to go to Columbus Academy and I saw really the, the inequity that's at play in Central Ohio, our country, that if you have parents with money, if you're yeah. in the right school, you get access to unlimited resources. Yeah, and if sure. you're not, then you just have to figure it out. And that, that just struck me as pretty unfair. So really it drew me to a career in public policy. Once I learned there was this thing called public policy, I'm like, okay. I gotta do something about that. But politics hasn't always been my thing, I would say. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to go, what's a Tufts University? Yeah, so I went to Tufts University in Boston. 
money. I mean, it's a good school, but then they also gave me a lot of money because yeah. I've always tried to get as much free education as I can. <laughs> for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. That's a big motivator. <laughs> That's like a private research university though, right? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a private liberal arts college, probably like 5,000 people. Pretty liberal, I would say, you know. Uh, has kind of like universe, uni, what is it? Unitarian Universalist tradition, so okay. very open-minded. Yeah. Was it like diverse? Like, cause I, I'm, I don't know. It's, it's like, not super diverse. I didn't there think were, so. Yeah, there were like a hundred black people in my class out of a thousand, uh, mostly black women, and a lot of people from New York and uh, in the East Coast, and then you know, I think there was maybe. I don't know, was there another person from Ohio? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> but you know what I liked about it was you met people from all over and then you know I was in a program that focused on, because I had that interest in like, okay, I've got to do something about inequality, so that interest in public policy. And I was in a program that was very service oriented there. So that got me into different communities in Boston, which was really cool. Cool. After that, you went and you got your MA at Princeton. Like, yeah. You went to Ivy League school, right? I did. <laughs> yeah. I've done a lot of school. I've done a lot of school. Yeah. So. But definitely. really, it's just been this like quest for me. It's like once I figured out there was a thing that I had to learn about, I'm like, all right, I got to go to the place where I can learn okay. about it and bring this skill set together to come back to Columbus and, and do something, you know? So, yeah, so I went to Princeton for public policy school. I did a joint degree with law school. I went to Stanford Law School, Princeton Public Policy school and kind of like combined it to cut down on how much time it was. So you got your, your Juris Doctor's degree from Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so you're a lawyer, like... I'm a lawyer. Okay, yeah. okay. Kind of non-practicing now, but I took the bar, <laughs> I did all the things. Yeah. So you, you passed the bar and all yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Very stressful. <laughs> a lot of my Everybody time I know that takes yeah. that, like, ah, it's the most stressful time, but... Super stressful, but yeah, you know, you just get it done. Okay, cool. Like... After college, though, what like what was your plan? Like after you got all this education, yeah. Um, like, well, after after college or law yeah, school? After after law school. Like. After law school. Well, after law school, I actually came back to Columbus and I worked for a federal judge, uh, clerking for him. So you kind of like help the judge think through how to decide cases, working on like the civil side. Okay, so if people were bringing uh, like one case that I worked on was a woman who had been denied disability benefits by her employer wow. and reaching a decision on whether or not that was just, you know, that they could deny her benefits. And I what came happened out, in that case? I came out that that was not, that was not legal, <laughs> that they should be doing that, that this woman deserved to get her benefits uh, because she had suffered a disability. So, yeah, those kinds of cases. Okay, and that's what you wanted to do? Is that the direction? Well, it was good. It's good training in a way, but, you know, I always have been more focused on the policy side of things because, you know, through to me, through policy, you're able to really think more, like, big picture, systemic, okay. uh, and that's been more my focus. Okay, and you spent three years at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Yeah, yeah. And what did you do there? Yeah, so the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created after the financial crisis. Um, because, you know, part of the idea was we had all that stuff going on with the mortgages because regulators were asleep at the wheel, essentially. It's like you had all these different agencies that were responsible for that market, and they weren't really looking out for us because okay. there was it was too diffuse. So bring that all within one agency that is just, you know, 24-7 thinking about consumers and financial products around mortgages, payday loans, and making sure that these markets are working 
fairly, right? So first uh, job I had there was writing rules to regulate the prepaid card market. So I don't know, <laughs> you know, like rush cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and actually why I was there that whole So rush you're putting rules in place when yeah. people actually get those cards. That's yeah, fine. because, you know, that emerged as a banking alternative. A lot of people that maybe didn't want to pay for a checking account because they couldn't afford it or wanted to be outside of the banking system. That's like Green Dot, too. Green Dot yeah, is another prepaid yeah, card. Yeah. But it was, it was just like Wild West, you know? It was like the companies could do whatever they want. And so we wrote rules to, like, bring some so boundaries. Bring, <laughs> yeah. bring them in. Bring yeah. Them yeah, and then when they're harming consumers that we would sue them, you know? Wow. Okay, that's dope. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember when the rush cards hit, and I remember that air, like, everybody was trying to get a rush card, yeah, and it yeah. was like, so that was, yeah, that was a wild time. That's yeah. dope. Um, but then what? I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, and then, yeah, then later I worked for Richard Cordray, so I was one of his policy advisors, and there we were looking at, like, much bigger markets, so, like, the credit reporting market, okay. payday loans, you know, coming up with regulation for that, in addition to, like, credit cards and all that, just really, especially on the payday thing, that's another market that's, like, kind of running free, especially here in Ohio, where there's not a lot of regulation around that, and, you know, really trying to, like, Make it so that you can't profit off of people's problems. Yeah, you can't yeah, charge yeah. five hundred dollar interest rate or five hundred percent interest rates on people for like a hundred dollar loan. It's just yeah. it's not really fair. Because I I know those those fees and penalties were always so high. Like yeah. I did collections and I know like just bank fees are high, but those would they didn't have no oh. control. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know it's like usually people that's like in a desperate position need money and and then to be in a debt trap that it takes like years to recover from. It's yeah, it's not cool. So so what does the date July first mean to you? <laughs> well, July first is my birthday, so it's meaningful in that way. But July first, twenty nineteen, is when I launched this campaign okay. to run for Congress. Nice, nice. So I was reading up, you know, doing my research, and I was reading on the website, and it says you care about nothing more than ending economic segregation. Yeah. Um, for the people that, like, are in their early 20s and 30s, like, what does that mean? To me, that means what I was talking about before, that based on your zip code or what neighborhood you're born into, that determines what kind of resources you have access to if you have a job that's paying you well. And that's what we're seeing. We see that here in Columbus. We see that across the country that, you know, you have this story, the economy's booming. It's like, well, for who, right? Yeah. We have a smaller and smaller number of people that are making more and more money. And the rest of us are kind of like, okay, we might be fine, but life is becoming increasingly expensive and by the way there's a ton of people that are not earning enough money to meet their basic needs so what are we going to do about that and i also read that columbus is the second highest level of economic segregation in the nation in the nation in the nation yeah, yeah i read that in uh, there was an article um in the um at the university of toronto so mm -hmm. like so the rich people just stay rich yeah and the and poor people just Stay poor, and increasingly what we're seeing is rich people are getting clustered into certain communities and then not interacting with people that are going through real problems. And then these are the types of people that then inform our policies, and they don't necessarily have that understanding of what other people are going through. It shouldn't be the case that because you're in one neighborhood, you will be in a school system that's failing, and you might have to travel on a bus for two hours to yeah. get to a job. It's like, this is not, this isn't the way it has to be, but this is what has been created mainly through federal policy like what what can we do to start to change that well why I decided to run for Congress in particular is because to me to get at that you really have to have the federal government start to make some serious investments okay. and and this is a thing that used to happen right I mean I would say before you know well 
in some ways, the federal government has never worked for all of us, and we know that <laughs> very, very well. For sure. Um, but getting the federal government back in the business of investing in us, so building more housing, uh, doing something about childcare expenses that are becoming increasingly expensive. Healthcare, yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. a whole nother thing where it's like, why are we accepting that 30 million people in this country don't have access to healthcare? And by the way, who likes their insurance company, right? So, right. you know, I mean, this is a, it's this system where a lot of people or a very narrow number of people make money off of these, these things, but the rest of us are just left to figure it out. And it's, it doesn't have to be like this, so. Is there a way to build, like, for the, the common folks to build um, economic health? Yeah, yeah. But you know what will help doing that is if you don't have to also be stressed about paying for medical expenses or having a medical emergency that could derail your finances. So, you know, that's why my platform is one prong of my platform, it's called Green New Deal, right? Okay. So, you know, that's something that, why I, ha why I wanted that on there is one, it gets at a little bit of the, you know, the climate change stuff. But to me, it's also an opportunity to invest in communities, in infrastructure projects, create high wage jobs in the clean energy sector, and really put people in a position to create economic wealth. And putting at the forefront of that, that we need to be investing in black communities in particular yes. that have often been excluded. We have often been excluded from a lot of these federal <laughs> investment programs, yeah, right? Sure. And then I also have on there systemic reparations, because to me, if we're talking about eliminating economic segregation, inequality, we need to be remediating and paying us back for a lot of the harm that occurred over the past 400 centuries in this country, often through federal policy. Yeah, so when, when, I, was, when I was reading up on um, that, um, I did see that you said that you want to focus on financial stability. Yeah. And housing also. Uh -huh. And I also read, like, we need to at least have 14,000 houses built a year right. compared to 8,000 that's being built now. Like I think it might even be as high as 54,000. That's Ooh. the need. Yeah, it's a huge issue. And, and you know, to me, what's happening is we have people that are flocking to Columbus because there are a lot of job opportunities from other parts of Ohio, from other parts of the country, and the city isn't able to keep up with this growth, and that growth is really happening to a small number of people who are earning higher incomes, and then people getting displaced from neighborhoods, or people who are in you know, some of the lower wage jobs that aren't going to be able to afford $17 an hour you need to be earning right now in Columbus to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Yes. <laughs> the minimum wage in our state is $8.55, right? So, you know, not that everybody's at that level, but even if you've got one of these jobs at a distribution center, whatever, $12 an hour, that's not getting you to housing. Not to mention food, your kids, transit, gas, all that. So to accomplish the change of minimum wage, like, what should we do? Should we, like, you know, should we call somebody? Should we write somebody? Like, No, we should vote and elect people okay. that are fighting for legislation that's actually going to do something, right? And we need to get out the mindset of minimum wage and start talking about living wage, right? Because min okay, minimal like wage, that. you know, there's this movement for $15 an hour, but like I just said, $15 an hour is not going to get you to covering basic expense, you know, the basic needs of housing, food, all that. So living wage is what we need to be thinking about. I, I, I do like that. I never thought about it that way. How do you feel about all the gentrification going on in Columbus? So <laughs> I have a lot of very strong feelings about gentrification. I, you know, in some ways it's, it's good to have people that you know want to live in Columbus and all of that, but a lot of this stuff is unfair and it's kind of disgusting to be honest, right? So we take a lot of neighborhoods, traditionally black communities in Columbus that 
the reason why they were created in this way was sometimes through cutting off from other economic opportunity in the city yeah. through highways being built and uh, redlining, not allowing us to get mortgages in different neighborhoods. This is how we have these neighborhoods built, create an economy that kind of functions there, and then divest resources in that economy, hurt the neighborhood, create pockets of people not having access to opportunity. And now we're gonna have new people coming in and we're like, oh, now we're gonna have all the resources that come and all the amenities, and we're gonna be pushing people out that have been for that whole 40-year journey where nobody seemed to care. Yeah. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah, because... Driving down High Street alone, you see the construction, and you're mm -hmm. like, wow, it looks like our city is bringing in so much money. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go to, quote unquote, you know, the bad parts or the hood, and then you'd be like, all these houses are still. There's no so change. Yeah. No, and, and you know, I mean, for me, that's been a lot of like my context for thinking about these policy issues is, you know, looking at, you know, the east side around Livingston that, you know, hasn't, hasn't really been necessarily thriving over the past yeah. 20 years, right? And then also you see areas in Columbus, and this is all, I'm not making this up, this is all data that's been released, yeah. that certain neighborhoods that have not moved from a poverty level perspective over the last 30 years. So, you know, that that's just reality, and we gotta we have to do something about that. How do, how do we get jobs in those type of neighborhoods where <laughs> the money can circulate back into those, like, communities, the black communities? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we get jobs there, like... Is there, well, is there a way? Well, that's why I included in the platform Jobs Guarantee, because I do think part of it is like bringing the federal money in and investing directly into communities. And what that could look like is, you know, we have uh, small business owners that already exist, you know, black-owned businesses that exist within these communities and are able to then access federal resources to engage in some of the, you know, maybe like an infrastructure, construction project or whatever, yeah. you know, like bringing... And hire people. Exactly. Right. Okay. exactly. And hire people at... A wage that is livable. Livable, right. yeah. livable right. wages. Right. All right, switching switching gears. How do you feel about the police brutality in Columbus? Because doing my research between 2013 and 2016, there were 24 people killed, and 20 of those people were black. Like we have a problem, yes. right? And, we, <laughs> and it's not a new problem. And now it's just time to do something about that. And you know that's an issue I feel really strongly about because it's it is life or death and and we are on the side of death and yes, the hands scary. of people that are supposed to protect us and that's not okay and so again i mean there is a role for federal government and in a lot of these issues i think we've been taught in a way to think of them as local problems police housing and we can only talk to local officials yeah about that. that's how that's how it's always presented to us like it's just you guys like. right but we've got a federal government that is able to establish standards across the country and in some ways especially on the police issue you need the federal government to be doing that because people here are too connected, right? So it's hard to be free of conflicts of interest if you have the police department that's reviewing their own people when they do something yeah, wrong, right? You sure. have to have the federal government that could establish a standard of ending police violence, mandating de-escalation training, mandating that after somebody kills a young black kid that, hey, they need to be, they need to be tested. Were you on steroid? Were you, you know, yeah. all of these things. And then also dealing with some really big issues around transparency and data. So what are the patterns? So th that you just gave a data point for, how long of a time frame was that? 2013 to 2016. Okay. But how many people have been killed by the police over 30 years, 30 right? 30 years. And then we're able to really establish patterns. So, you know, I would also advocate for the Department of Justice 
to get data from local police departments. And we're not just talking about Columbus here, right? The third district includes Whitehall, yeah. Reynoldsburg, you know, other Gahanna, a big chunk of Gahanna, other municipalities within within the district, within central Ohio. All of that data should be fed up into the federal government, and then the federal government can do an analysis, release a report every year, and we can really start to see what's actually occurring. But as long as it's just like one-off story and one-off story, and if you didn't catch the local news that day, uh, yeah, you didn't yeah, hear yeah. about it, then we never are going to get to change. Yeah, especially in the social media era, it comes so fast and goes. So fast, so. and people are distracted. But it's like, no, people are people are dying. Children are dying. Children are and dying. And we got to do yeah. something about that. We definitely got to do something about that. Also, um, And get rid of so many guns <laughs> as well. But yeah. Yes. Yes, I was going to ask you, what's your thought on um, um, gun control? Because with the, with the mass shooting in Dayton, which uh -huh. is close to us, you know, it, it's close to home. Yeah. And I know it happens all around the country, but this one was close to home. So how do you feel about gun control? We have to be pushing <clears throat> harder. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about background checks. I think that's like baseline, but I also think we need to be banning these weapons of war that yeah, are... Yeah, automatic weapons? Yeah, that are unleashed <clears throat> in our communities. <clears throat> and that, by the way, the police also have access to, right? It's like, there's no reason for these types of weapons. It's not necessary for public safety, and it's not necessary for recreation. So just get rid of them. Yeah, because I'm reading, there's been over 283 mass shootings so far this year. It's not, like... When, yeah. You don't need... I'll, we talk about it all the time on the show. We don't, we don't, you don't need an automatic weapon. There's no need for that. There's need no that. need for that. Yeah. And, and even people who think like, oh, well, but I want my right to a gun. It's like, okay, but you think it's safe, but it's an illusion, right? We're all in this culture of violence that puts us all at risk. And yes. we've got we've to put a stop to it. I mean, you can see what happened when Dayton guy was in a local Walmart. And, you know, so it can happen at any time. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that as far as gun control. Like, I have people, and we're out canvassing now, starting to go through neighborhoods, and people have guns while we're canvassing, talking about the campaign. I'm like, this is, and it's all legal, right? Yeah. I mean, so. And um, I know you talk about immigration, um, and our president is always <laughs> talking about immigration. Like, how do you feel about the, uh, what's your stance on the immigration <laughs> laws, basically? I do think we need immigration reform. I mean, we have a system that's pretty broken there, and you know, and we we have examples of it locally as well. So, uh, I mean, I was raised by an immigrant, so I really mm -hmm. believe in the power of people coming to this country. She, I mean, my my mother came here and adopted two children, right? Yeah, she and worked yeah. in the Columbus public school system. So, you know, we need to make a space for people to come here and really have a chance to live a life that's free of terror from the federal government or other, you know, law enforcement entities. I have been pretty involved with, uh, you know, some of the women here locally that are in sanctuary. We, Edith Espinal, uh, you know, going with her daughter to the ICE office to make sure that yeah. we're doing all we can to make sure she's not deported. You know, after coming here as a minor, right, 16, so she doesn't have a choice of, like, yeah, what she gets sure. to be doing from... Uh, and then building a life here, family, working, having children, and then she's going to get a deportation order, it's like, is that a good use of resources for anyone? This woman's not bothering anybody. And I was reading, like, 82% of newborns in Columbus are foreign-born. Mm. That's... I, I mean, didn't know that stat. Yeah, I was, I was reading that. I was like, wow. So, I, I haven't seen, like, or I haven't heard too much about ICE in Columbus, but yeah. you see it in New York a lot. You see it in L.A. a lot, so... But it's here, right? I mean, that's where we went downtown. I went with Edith's daughter to the ICE office. And, you know, and it is, it's interesting because in Columbus, too, I do, there's sometimes this veneer of like, 
everything's kind of fine. Because yeah. Because it, it's Columbus. Like. It's Columbus. It's like, and the ice office is in Levesque Tower, and Levesque Tower's nice, but it's like, the it policies nice. are the policies, right? And even if it's a nice exterior, we're yeah. still tormenting people for, for, sure. for no reason. So. <laughs> for sure. Um, what's your stance on equal pay between men and women? Uh, I'm in favor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but black women in general, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, the, and again, they're the facts of the facts, right? Mm. I mean, we're making less money for doing the same work. I don't know about the work environments you've been in, but I do feel like women are at a minimum pulling their weight and usually above and beyond. Uh, and this, yeah, I mean, we need to be making... We need to mandate that and make sure that people are getting paid equally. I, I definitely believe in that, too. Especially well. when you look at how many, for example, like single mothers we have in the district. So these disparities have real impact also on children, right? And it's like yeah. how, what resources they have access to. So we've got we've to correct for this. Yes, and I have a mother, a sister, a niece, you know, so mm -hmm. yeah. I, I want yeah. them to live, live comfortable. But I've had sure. that experience, right? And you would think like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer, I've gone mm -hmm. to these schools, I'm immune from this thing. It's like, no, having to advocate in the work environment, even in places that claim to be you know, liberal or whatever for my value. Yeah. Why? Like, why am I in that position of having to prove that I, you know, am a good, as good as a man in this in this context? So. Yeah, that's wild. Even in 2019, we've got a Even lot. Even in 2019. Yeah. Speaking of 2019, um, how do you feel about legalizing weed in Columbus? <laughs> I think we need to get rid of the criminalizing of a lot of activity, and I would put weed in that category. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I, I read that they're about to start opening dispensaries here and everything. Right. So it's going to be curious to see what they're going to do, especially with people that actually went to prison for marijuana and now. Well, exactly. So what I also, you know, when we talk about weed is, yeah, I don't want anybody making money off of weed if we still have people that are in prison for weed, right? Yeah. That is not fair. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we need to also have a policy that's thinking about prioritizing those people that were in prison for weed so that they have access to licenses and also have an opportunity to build wealth and make money off of that. So that piece of it, it's about fairness, you know, yes. and that's not cool. So yeah, I'm all for weed being more open, but it's like, let's make sure the people that have been punished and lost years of their life get out and have access to actually making money off of this too. <laughs> I totally agree. On the flip side, like, how do you feel about the, the opioid crisis going on in Franklin County? No, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's getting scary. It's like. tragic. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there are parts of the district that are really feeling that, but you know, there's also been communities that have experienced problem with drugs and, you know, in other, yeah, other you know, drugs, cocaine yeah. and heroin and all that, that also need to be considered the epidemics and crises that they are. And so, no, but I mean, that's another thing where federal policy, for example, that people that are in this position of being addicted to drugs need health care and they shouldn't yes. be punished they just because they have an addiction. But right now we have a system where that might not happen and that's not cool. And we all end up paying more by just not giving people the treatment that they need. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that that situation. I always felt like the government could help out more. Like, yeah. I always felt like they can help clean up more areas. So, well, and, and you know, it's it's interesting too. I mean, we have, um, you know, once people hear my story and they learn, you know, I was in foster home for nine months. That we have people that reach out to me, you know, where they're like, "Wow, you know, I want you to meet other kids." And even though I was an infant at the time, I just mm. feel like there's so much stigma around that that people yeah. want to connect. And anyway, so we've connected with a, a guy locally who's raising currently five foster children, all of wow. whom have been impacted by the opioid epidemic. And it's like, this is 
and it's rough. That's yeah, rough. but again, if you're in your bubble and you never see it, then you're not motivated, even when so you're in a position of power, to really do something about that. And that's to me why, really, why I needed to run. It's like we we have a lot going on, and we need to be moving with urgency about it. I definitely, I definitely agree with you on that situation, just because I've seen it affect people close to me. Um, switching gears again, you're going up against Joyce Baby. I am. <laughs> She's yeah. been in the office for a long time. Like, why do you feel like the time is now? Well, for me, it was really my evolution and thinking about like the why I got into this in the beginning getting at inequality, ending economic segregation, feeling like there was a movement building nationally where people were actually able to fight for these policies and we could we could get this done. But there are not that many movements or moments that come like this. Yeah. And I really felt like people here in the third district in central Ohio would get behind it if they had the option. But we've never had a choice. And you know the district is I'm gonna use a technical you know policy <laughs> term right now, but the, you know the gerrymandered. I'm yeah, gonna, yeah, that. yeah. I'm familiar. Yeah. So which essentially means like this is a safe seat. It, it's a Democratic seat, and the only way that you can ever have a choice is if another Democrat runs, right? So I wanted to put the ideas out there, have a platform that is more progressive, that I think is going to get at these issues, and the time is now, because the movement is now. The movement is now. I, I agree. But doesn't it take a lot of money to win a campaign? Like, people have, like, dinners and fundraisers, but you're doing, like, a gra grassroots type Yeah, thing. I'm doing all grassroots, so I'm not accepting any corporate PAC money. Uh, or money from firearms manufacturers, or uh, today I actually made a pledge to also not take any money from the fossil fuel industry so that I can be free to be unbought, unbossed, and just do what's right. And yeah, I mean, it makes it more challenging to get the resources to do a campaign, a congressional campaign, but it's not, it's not impossible because what we're gonna have is people. And ultimately what you need to win is people voting. And people are really responding well to our message. And, and they like, you know, I'm not a politician. I've never run for anything before. And when you say no corporate, no corporate money, that means something to people. And they know that that means you're free to just do what's right. Is, is there a reason why you chose to go that route or? It's really more... It's kind of unconventional. It's kind of unconventional. Yeah. I, I may be an unconventional person, but, <laughs> but no, because it's just like that's... It's, it's intuitive in a way, right? Like, that's what it takes to really have people in Congress that, that I'm going to be able to just do what I know is necessary to help people that are living here, real people that are living here, some of whom are suffering. I want to be able to do the maximum, you know? And okay. in order to do that, you have to build independently so that you can, you can fight for the policies that are just the right ones. Because I feel like sometimes people get comfortable, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Ms. Beatty's been in office forever. We're just comfortable with it. And I feel like disruption is good sometimes. I feel like disruption... Like a change of pace is good yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and, you know, I mean, I also felt like we, we, our generation, is thinking bolder. We're thinking bigger, and we're not waiting because we know this stuff needs to change. And we've given this system, politics, whatever, a chance. And where's it gotten us, right? Right. So let's try something different. I'm with you on that. Um, so again, I, I want to know what's your top three legislative properties when you are elected? Like, what would they be? Yeah. Do I get four? Four? Go for <laughs> it. I have four prongs of the go, platform. Go for it. Go for it. So I do have that financial stability prong of the platform that includes things like uh, universal child care and also universal income. I don't think people with $400 shortfalls a month should be like getting evicted and having to get a payday loan, all that nonsense. 
um, in addition to Medicare for All, making sure that everybody has access to health care. Uh, housing, so that's a big issue for me, trying to get at you know ways that we prevent landlords from being able to jack up rent you know, 30% year over year if they feel like it. Pretty much we're in a system now where they get to do whatever they want and increasing more housing for seniors, people that are earning lower income. Systemic reparations I have on there, again, just to like get at, we need to be, we need to be real about what's occurred and get get at that wealth gap. Because right now we have a wealth gap where the average black family in this country has $9,000 in net income, net wealth, and the average white family, $132,000. Yeah, yeah. That didn't just happen, and that needs to be addressed, right? If we're going to be talking about equality. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's real life. Like it, That has it real really affects, consequences. Yeah, it really affects people when she put out put those numbers out. Like, there's the, big, the gap is too big. That, it's incredible. It's how, <laughs> after how long we've been in this country? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and that's where I get at with the gentrification issue, too, is like, okay, well, if you didn't allow people to buy homes and then, or they had to buy homes in areas that you knew weren't going to be appreciating, there was no wealth capture there. And home ownership is usually how people are making money in this country. And then now we're going to gentrify them, push people out, push elderly out to sell for low amounts of money and then charge $400,000 for those homes. I know. To outside invest. No way. No, no. We got to stop that. So uh, anyway. I digress a little bit. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, but reparations. And also thinking about ideas like, you know, I like the baby bond concept. Derek Hamilton here at Ohio State talks a lot about baby bonds so that every kid who's born gets seed capital. Thinking about, okay, well, maybe that's a higher amount for black families and black children that are born. And then like that. that appreciates over 18 years. And when you turn 18, you, you have money to be an entrepreneur to buy property, to go to, you know, go to school for something. Although I'm also advocating for free public college. So that's yeah. Uh, yeah. Or give us student loans. Yeah, yeah. And also <laughs> cancel this debt, free a generation to actually live their lives, free of fear of like these loan payments. Do you know how many times I'm in conversation? I don't know if you find this with a friend. It's like, oh, that's my student loan company. I'm not going to take that yeah, call, right? Yes, it's like, yes. This is crazy. We have people that are not having children because they're still paying student loans. So that, yeah, and then also the climate. So, you know, today we were at the State House for a rally about climate change, and I made a commitment to fight for Green New Deal. Yes, like, let's, before yeah. we finish, let's talk about that. Yeah. Like, why are you so... Because the house is on fire, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of other issues that I'm very passionate about, but if we don't have a planet that's inhabitable, if we have children in Columbus City schools that are in classrooms that don't have air conditioning and extreme heat conditions continue to happen and it's only getting worse... We're not going to have a place to live that's comfortable in any way. And by the way, the people that have not done well in this country for a long time are going to be those that are most impacted by this climate crisis. Seniors that don't that aren't in good housing, those that are homeless, all of this. So this is a this is a real crisis. Yes. And we got to do something about it. And there is, and it's clear what we need to do, but we just need leaders that are ready to actually get it done. I like it. I like it. I like it. All right, before we finish up, I gotta ask the hard questions. Oh gosh, okay. I gotta ask. <laughs> who are you? And this is this is for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. who is your top five favorite artist? Top five? <laughs> I need oh one god. through five. Oh my god. Because everybody knows me. I'm the music guy, you know what I'm saying? Oh my god. And I'm just <laughs> Self, like, self proclaimed place. <laughs> I'm so not a good music person. This is where my fiance is probably gonna be like, oh god, oh god, she's gonna answer this question at <laughs> So I have to shout out Talib Kweli because okay. he tweeted about my race he and did, I did he did yeah and I and I love him I've always loved him because <laughs> I felt like he was always being very real about what we're seeing in communities and you know the whole socially conscious Shout rap movement yeah so I love him 
Kanye's crazy, but, <laughs> but, but I love, you know, so. It's so, okay. Yeah, it's okay. I know, it's okay. I know, <laughs> I know. So uh, before the race, I actually was listed, like, Ultra Light Beam. Ultra Light Beam, I love that And that song kind of got me, like, centered for doing this. I just. Three more. Three I have to go with three more. Oh my god. Okay. Okay. I like Erica Badu. Erica Badu. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Erica. I can't right? go with Erica Badu. And then I did. You you pointed out the Janet Jackson thing. So I'll take a couple early '90s ones too. I'll take, I would, take Janet. Janet. Janet's a legend. I always loved In Vogue too. So I'll take In some Vogue. early okay. '90s ones. That's yeah. five. I, I love that it. That was five, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that works. So <laughs> please tell the people how they can contact you, where they can find you, how they can follow up with you. Yeah. Plug everything away. Okay. Website, morganharper.org. Social media, MH4, number four, OH. Uh, that we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. We sometimes are featured at other people's Snapchat, but we don't have an active campaign okay, Snapchat. Okay. So, you know, maybe that happens. And, uh, and the hashtag's Morganize. So, you know, if you're Morganize. out, if you see us, post. That's what, because really what that's getting at is this is a grassroots, community-based effort to try to, like, get politics back on the side of people. And so we're everywhere. So that's why we're calling it Morganizing, that we just want to be out here with connecting with people that are going to help us spread the word and really take back control of our government and have it work for us. So... Uh, sign up, join the movement. Yes, join the movement. Um, and we're at Main Street, 139 East Main Street. If you want to pop in person yes. downtown, we're always here or somebody's here. And you can always come down in person, get a bumper sticker. And when is the date to vote? So the election is March 17th, 2020. So it'll be the same time as when everybody votes for the Democratic presidential candidate. So okay. it's the primary. Primary, okay. uh, And then you'll also have a chance to vote for the congressional representative for third district. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Morgan, again, I know you're super busy. We hear uh, what we talk about. Thank you very much for your time. And this it. has been awesome. Um, this is a little bit out of my element, as my, my friends would know, but um, I, I love being educated. So yeah. this was dope. The times and, demand it. Uh, yes, We've all yes, got yes. to engage in politics. Yes, it's important because I still got a lot of life to live and I got kids and I want them to you know, have a better life than I did growing up. So, And I really think right now we're at a moment where we're, we're working towards that. So yes. we got to take advantage of it. So thank you for your time yeah. again. Thank you. Uh, Morganize. Yeah, Morganize. Everything. So <laughs> really appreciate it. It's your boy, Try Dave, the check-in, what we talking about. Shout out to Reese. Shout out to Blaze. Shout out to Dez. You know how we do. We are out of here. Peace. Yeah.